Okay, this is Tyson James. And the lesson tonight is, what is apologetics? Okay, so everybody has a handout. This may be a little different than some studies that you've been to, um, because I do uh, go pretty in-depth in some things. And so I always like to remind people that uh, studies have shown that you retain information best when you interact with it in multiple ways. So reading, talking aloud, taking notes, all of these things can help you retain more information. Um, when you just listen to a lecture, you're not going to retain nearly as much as if you interact with it. So I've got pens if you want to take notes, and uh, this is going to require interaction from all of us. So uh, be prepared to ask questions and uh, uh, contribute. So uh, we only have three weeks until the apologetics conference, and so I don't know if we're going to continue this class after that or not, um, but uh, however long I do have, uh, what we're going to do is start um, each class with a crit common criticism that's uh, leveled against Christianity or religion in, uh, in general, and a response, and then we'll go into the lesson. So the first thing we have is uh, our first criticism. It says, uh, the atheist says you're only a Christian because you were raised a Christian. If you were born in Iran or Saudi Arabia, you would have most likely been a Muslim. And this shows that religion is just relative to culture and yours is no more true than any other. Okay, the response here is that this comment commits the quote-unquote genetic fallacy. And genetic here, uh, the word genetic obviously means the source or the beginning of the information. So um, the genetic fallacy seeks to deny the truth of a position by pointing out where it comes from. Well, you just got that from some whatever source, therefore it's not true. But uh, that's obviously logically fallacious. One could get 2 plus 2 equals 4 from a Cracker Jack box, but the fact that it came from that box doesn't do anything to diminish its truth. 2 plus 2 equals 4, no matter where you got that information from. So just because we were raised in a predominantly Christian society, and thus are more likely to be Christians ourselves, does not mean that the truth of Christian doctrine is in any way diminished. Also, the argument cuts both ways. In saying that beliefs are culturally relative, the atheist has to admit that his own beliefs are culturally relative. And so it undermines the truth of his position as well. Right? Uh, atheism is largely a 20th century Western civilization phenomenon. And so you could easily say to the atheist, well, if you had been born in Saudi Arabia, you too would be a Muslim. And so should I question the truth of atheism because of that? Obviously not. Okay, any questions about the genetic fallacy? All right, so with the apologetics, coming, uh, apologetics conference coming up, we want to ask the question first to motivate um, whether or not we should study apologetics. What is it? Okay, so our key, one of our key verses here is 1 Peter 3.15. It says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. Okay, and 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. Actually, um, what I have there written down is not the full passage, so let's go ahead and turn to that real quick. 
2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. Somebody want to read that for us? For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Uh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Pretty powerful language. Um, the ESV here says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So, can you imagine, you know, like being in a conversation with one of your non believing friends and being like, By the way, in this conversation about religion, I'm going to be trying to destroy your arguments and uh, any opinion that you raise against Christ? Uh, it's, it's very, very combative language, but Scripture also gives us guidance on how we can um, go about apologetics with gentleness and respect. So uh, the first point there, that first blank you guys have, is apologia. Apologia. A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A. So that's, uh, that's the word that is in 1 Peter, uh, that bolded word, defense. Uh, in Greek, it's apologia. And that's the Greek term for uh, reason or defense. It's the same root as apology. Obviously, uh, in that context, it doesn't have anything to do with saying you're sorry or apologizing, which kind of puts a funny spin on if you have kids uh, telling your kids, you know, apologize. What you're actually asking them is to give an argument, <laughs> which is not really what you want when you say that, but that's what you're asking them. Okay, and there are several instances in the Bible of apologetics being used. So let's turn to Acts 17.2. Acts 17.2 says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Okay, so he's using Scripture, something that they all uh, agreed upon, all considered valid and true as a common ground from which to argue the truth of the resurrection uh, and the messiahship of Christ. Okay, and notice that he does that for three Sabbath days. That's, uh, that's pretty patient. That's a pretty patient uh, arguer. I don't know too many of us that would engage in an argument for that long, unless it's family and you can't get away with them. <laughs> All right, Acts 17, 17, uh, and then 30 through 31. It says, So he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue with Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
down to verse 30. Sorry, I don't think I have 30 there in your notes. But that's the next one. Uh, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the writer of Acts uh, is um, quoting Paul here at the Areopagus. And Paul is using the resurrection of Christ as evidence for uh, his claims. Okay, Peter, uh, he is at Pentecost in Acts 2.22, so just backwards a few chapters. Somebody want to read that one, 2.22? Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Go ahead and do 23 as well. Uh, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands have crucified and have put to death. Okay. For whom God raised up. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So all that there works, wonders, signs, these were offered as a demonstration of the truth. And then verses 25 to 31. Someone want to take that one? For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You have made me. You have made me full of gladness with your presence. How far to? Uh, Thirty-one. Thirty-one. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because of, he was a prophet and knew that God has sworn to him with an oath that to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Okay, so um, Peter here is, again, taking the Old Testament, and uh, he's quoting Psalm 16 there in uh, verses uh, 25 to 28. That's Psalm 16, 8 to 11. And so he's pointing to this as fulfilled prophecy, uh, applying it to Christ. And so that is what, is he, what he's using as evidence for the truth of uh, Jesus' claim to uh, his Messiahship. And then verse 32 um, it says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So there Peter is talking. He's referring to a group of people who are all proclaiming the same message. They were all alive at the same time of Jesus' death and resurrection. And he's saying, 
we are all testifying to the same thing, that, G we, that Jesus was actually raised up and we saw him. Okay, and then Jesus himself, uh, a great apologist in his own right, as we would expect. Uh, so Luke 24, 25 to 27. Kelly, you want to take that one? And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he in interpreted them, eh, to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, again. The Jews of his time considered the Old Testament scripture, holy and inspired, and then Jesus used the scriptures, what they agreed upon, to prove to them uh, that the death of the Christ was necessary. Okay, and John 14, 11. Daniel, you want to take that one? Okay. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. It's very interesting. Right, so Jesus is saying, believe in me. I'm, I'm asking you to believe in me. But even if you can't do that, I have given you a demonstration of the truth of what I'm saying through the works that I've done. So he has offered evidence of himself through his works. You know, interesting in that particular context, he's talking to Philip, the yeah. disciple. Yeah. One who has been with him for three, he's not talking to an unbeliever. And what does that say about what it takes to convince some people? <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Uh, when his, I mean, think about the fact that his own brother, James, mm -hmm. came to believe that his brother was the son of God. What would, who has siblings in here? What would it take for your, you know, for you to say that your sibling was the son of God or divine or something like that? I imagine it this way. Can you imagine living with the perfect son of God as a child? <laughs> <laughs> And yet, I, I got a feeling they were angry at him <laughs> because he never did anything wrong, and they stayed in trouble. <laughs> he hit me. No, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, and actually, I didn't write this down, but uh, what was it? At the end of John, um, John chapter 20, verse... 30 and 31. This is fantastic. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs, this is after his resurrection, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What he's saying here is that what he's written down are the, the most powerful evidences for who Jesus was and why you should trust him. Which means that everything in this book 
is an apologetic for who Jesus is. Okay? And uh, part E. So, one of the many complaints that you'll actually hear from mostly from Christians is that no one is saved through arguing. You can't argue someone into the gospel. Um, no apologist will say that evidence can be used apart from the Holy Spirit. Okay, if, if they're a good apologist, then they're led by Scripture, which says that people are only saved through the drawing of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we don't say that. What we say is the power to save is not in the evidence itself, but in the use of the evidence by the Holy Spirit to bring people to God. God is pleased to use arguments and evidence to bring people to himself. That is the primary way that he worked in the early church. He used other people and their presentation of proofs to bring others into the church. All right, any questions about that first part about the biblical data? Welcome. You know, interesting that you can argue, you can take truth and argue with it until you're blue in the face. But there's no power in the argument. It's in the truth. Right. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free by the working of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing. If we are evangelizing, if we're trying to reach our lost family members and friends, but we're not praying for God to use our discussions to bring them to himself, then why should we expect there to be any fruit from that? If we can't take the time to pray that God would use this, um, you know, that we're, not, we're not appealing to the power that uses those arguments. Okay, point B, how do we do apologetics? So how do we do apologetics? What methods do we use? Number A, or letter A, uh, through arguments. Through arguments. Obviously this is not meant in the sense of conflict. We don't want to come across as combative or defensive or argumentative, but we do want to present arguments. Uh, we want to offer a rational case for our, um, for our claims. One of the main ways that people evangelize is through using their testimonies, right? How God has changed their own lives uh, after they have placed their trust in Him. And certainly that's a powerful thing. Anybody who has known you prior to Christ and then seen that change will know that something is obviously different. The problem with that is no one really has access to your mental states, right? Um, somebody who's a really good actor might be able to pull off, you know, um, seeming different to people from the outside. Why do we use arguments? Well, arguments that we use have evidence that are available publicly to everyone. 
you can you can see nature you can experience morality for yourself you can go look at the textual evidence for the resurrection uh, that's available to everyone so you're not appealing to something that's um, hidden within you it's available to everyone and so that's why arguments are used because they're a demonstration you don't have to have arguments to know personally whether or not God has affected you but there's a difference between knowing personally and showing other people knowing versus showing uh, that's a very important distinction okay letter B uh, these arguments include premises or declarations that lead logically to a conclusion so that first blank is premises and the second blank is conclusion. Give the common example there. Number one, all men are mortal. The second premise is Socrates is a man. And those two lead to the conclusion that therefore Socrates is mortal. Or, I brought one. Ooh, my reasonable faith swag. This is the Kalam cosmological argument. It says everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Okay? I think therefore I am. It's not Well, not normally anyway. Letter C. Following the rules of logic ensures that your argument is as strong as possible. So there are actually rules of thinking. Um, that's what philosophers do. They apply the rules of logic to every subject under the sun. Uh, and surprisingly, it might seem to some, there are only about nine rules of logic. Um, if you can't name one, it's because you probably went to public school and they don't require logic in public schools. I know I went to public school uh, from second grade on and never learned a single law of logic. Why is that? Um, I don't know, but that seems to be a failure. But yeah, there's about nine of these rules and uh, they're not overly complicated. This one and the one in the, uh, the example there with Socrates, um, it's a, called modus ponens. So uh, in f sort of uh, its formal uh, formulation, it's if A, then B, uh, A, or P, Q, if P, then Q, P, therefore Q. So if everything that begins to exist has a cause, then, um, and the universe began to exist, then the universe has a cause. So if P then Q, P therefore Q. Okay, so laws of logic. Letter C. There are different methods of apologetics. So different people approach presenting the rational argument for Christianity differently. The one that we're using in this class is called classical apologetics, and that is appealing to the common experiences of nature and logic, I didn't put that in there, but also logic, to argue that God is the best explanation for a particular phenomenon. So I have some examples there. Uh, the beginning of the universe, what best explains that? The fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life, objective morality, 
the applicability of math to the physical universe, the historical evidence for the resurrection, and on and on. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of these types of arguments. Uh, none of these appeal to private mental states that nobody else has access to. Right? Everybody has access to the evidence for the beginning of the universe. Everybody has access to the uh, texts that are publicly available on the resurrection. Okay. There are two aspects of classical apologetics. Uh, letter B is offensive or positive apologetics. It's not to say that we are offensive, but that we use offensive apologetics in which we unpack the various positive arguments for the existence of God, and each argument adds to the cumulative case for specifically the Christian God. So there are arguments that are kind of generic, that don't lead you specifically to Christianity, and some arguments that are specific to Christianity. So, for instance, uh, saying that, therefore, the universe has a cause is great. It might get you to a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, very powerful creator of the universe, but that's not in specific enough to say, well, then it's the Christian God. You have to have additional information to get to that point. Which is basically the aspect behind intelligent design. Um, talking to biology people out at the university, they don't believe in God, but they cannot ask the indeterminate question. They can't answer that. Okay? Yep. So it's, it's we, we, we exist in creation, you know, the creation of the universe is timeless, so it could be billions of years old to them. They, they have no starting point. And if you lock them into, into what time are we in now, they can't answer that question. The second thing, is they cannot answer the question of and what came before that. There's a point that they have to stop. So what I've seen happening with biologists is start to turn to this intelligent design model. Now they'll tell you well, there was an intelligence in the design. Um, we just can't identify what that intelligence was. And I, I found it's, it's interesting. My faith has not changed yet. Theirs does. And I use that quite often in talking to these doctorates of biology, mm -hmm. the physical science. It's just basically you get them to the point to the question they can't answer, and then they'll come up with a, an answer that's about that close to being the real one. Mm -hmm. But they just can't seem to take the extra measure. Just something stops them with inside. To piggyback the doctor's comment. Okay, fine. Yeah. I think. People I talk to, most people that have looked into any type of evolution will tell you this. It just, it just don't work. Now they're going to aliens. I mean, have you heard this? Yeah. Well, Richard Dawkins, you know, himself has yeah, said. I that, mean, they're really, yeah. you know, there's all kinds of neat things about planting on a meteorite and all this other yeah. thing. Yeah. Okay, but it all boils down to, well, who made the alien? Right? To me. It just pushes the question back a step. Mm -hmm. yeah. The response is, and this one did your help with. Well, I don't know. We've got to find the alien to find that. And I, I just got to find something else to do at that point. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. How are you going to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I'll be quiet. <laughs> Good point. I mean, I don't know. Because I really think if you look at evolution, it, there's just there's too, way too many holes in it. 
Well, and, and you could even give away evolution and still ask the question, how is it that evolution is possible to begin with? You're, t you're giving me a theory about um, the way that the diversity of uh, the biological life on our planet came to be, but in order for that diversity or this theory to even come about, you have to have matter, you have to have chemistry, you have to have the conditions just right for these things to happen. So what explains the fine-tuning of these conditions to begin with? I mean, you have to have such an incredible amount of precision in, for instance, the weak nuclear force to be able to hold together the nucleus of an atom. Um, that if it was just off by one, you know, part in a, a ridiculous amount, you wouldn't even have chemistry. So if you don't have chemistry, you definitely don't have evolution. So at the very beginning, when we're talking about the creation of the, the constants and quantities of that, that are in the universe at the very beginning, they're already perfectly fine-tuned for the ability for there to be intelligent life, which is why Robert Jastrow even said, look, it kind of seems like um, you know, the scientists are climbing a mountain, you know, this height, and they get to the top only to find a bunch of theologians at the top have been sitting there for thousands of years. You know, um, that, that is kind of the point where they're at. The, the end run on that, we got to find the alien, because actually one of the head biologists oh. out there told me that um, there's this secret dark matter that's floating around it that it actually created the whole thing. And I'm like, oh really? We discovered that. And he goes, no, but I, I believe it's out there. Now that is where you get them. Once they say, I believe something is out there I've never seen, never touched, never felt, never heard, never tasted. They just went out from beyond what science actually is and went into the area of faith science, which is their faith is this. So a lot of times when they go, well, we got to find the alien first, my usual response at that point, and it usually ends the conversation the same way, is when you need to find God, and then you'll understand my faith. It's just the same question. They're, they're going to find, they'll find God before they'll find the alien. You know, God made it so simple for them. They've complicated it. They've yes. taken it beyond the psalmist. Uh, the heavens declare. You could just say God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. But then he says, day unto day is speaking. Every day is uttering a speech. So that's so simple, isn't it? But you get to Romans chapter 1, when they knew God, they saw him general revelation. They glorified him not as God, and what did God do to them? Gave them over into the reprobate minds. And that's what they've done. Yeah, because they'll give credit to everybody else. Yeah. It's so simple. If you start with the right premise, then you can end on the right conclusion. So that's kind of. Uh, <laughs> Did we get on? <laughs> I don't know. Well, no, no, no. So <laughs> he's got it now. So, so, so I'm a simpleton. <laughs> All right, I prefer to be a simpleton. <laughs> Yeah. So what you said is kind of interesting. If you start at the right premise, That's right. you will get to the right conclusion. Yes. So part of our job as Christians is to offer the right premises. The, uh, right. Where the apologetic. Comes. Right. Yeah. Yes. And so and then we need to um, 
support our claims, those premises, with things that are available to those people. Um, for instance, just taking this, uh, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Even non-believers can accept that. That's not a specifically theological claim, that everything that begins to exist has a cause. And the way you motivate someone that you know who is skeptical of that is just to say, well, think about the opposite of that that not everything that begins to exist has a cause. You're telling me that there are things that can begin to exist that don't have a cause. That just means that they popped into existence out of nothing for no reason at all. That's even worse than magic. Because at least with magic, you have a magician, and you have a hat, and maybe a rabbit. Okay? And a sleight of hand. Yeah, okay, so at least there's some agency there with, you know, something coming into existence out of nothing. You know, there's not anything. No reason at all. And then uh, experience. Do we ever experience anything just popping into existence out of nothing for no reason? All of our experience says that this table, if it began to exist, something caused it to exist. So all of our experience goes to back that as well. well my dad's been claiming for years that's how I Explain to me, Okay, so that was offensive apologetics, and so obviously the, uh, the next one is defensive apologetics. Some people prefer to just go with defensive apologetics. We're going to go with both offensive and defensive. But defensive apologetics is being concerned with defeating any arguments or criticisms against the existence of God or the truth of Christianity. Okay? So, offensive apologetics, you're sending the arguments out for people to either accept or reject. Defensive is cutting down or blocking the arguments coming in. Okay, so this might be something like evolution. Somebody says, well, evolution has proven that we don't need God to explain the diversity of the species that we have, or the existence of the universe, or objective morality, or etc, etc, etc. And then you say, well, what is your argument? And then I'm going to show why that argument doesn't work. So if I say, well, which came first? chicken or the egg? Is that a defensive or offensive? Mm, that's just a question. That's that's not an argument. Questions aren't arguments. Oh, questions lead to arguments. <laughs> it might. But how would you repudiate the, this rock is 80 million years old? Say what? This rock is 80 million years old. So we haven't been around. Humans have been around for what? Uh, well, 8,000 years? And so I, I, how would you tackle that? How I would personally handle that is probably different than the leadership of the church would handle that. So I'll refer you to them on how they would handle that. But I personally, my favorite tactic is to give them as much ground as possible and then to take that ground out from under them. So in that situation, um, if they were saying that that rock is 80 million years old, I'd say, okay, so how does that show that God doesn't exist? Okay, nothing that you've said about a rock being 80 million years old precludes the existence of God. In fact, the existence of anything at all, I think, shows that God exists. If there are things that could have been differently, then there should be something that could not have been differently to explain everything else. Um, so there's a whole argument behind that as well. It's called the contingency argument. So 
Um, we'll talk about that somewhere down the road, I'm sure. But chicken and egg comes in. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I prefer to just give them as much ground as possible and show that usually it, it doesn't get anywhere near to showing that Christianity is false or that uh, God doesn't exist. Okay, let's talk a little bit about apologetics in the 21st century. So in the biblical data, we saw Paul and Peter and Jesus using apologetics in a very different way than we would do apologetics today. So they were appealing to the Old Testament, which was readily accepted by the people that they were talking to. In our context, we don't get to start from that beginning point, um, because the people that we're talking to generally won't accept the Bible as true in very much any sense uh, that we would imagine. So. How will our interactions in the 21st century be different? Um, so part A, um, you should know that atheists currently are on the defensive. Uh, in the 20th century, we saw a rise in atheism, mainly due to a pulling back or retreat of Christians from academia. Uh, this was a very unfortunate occurrence, and it shouldn't have happened, but it did. There, however, was a resurgence of Christians in academia towards the end of the 20th century. Um, and this is in part because of uh, this first point. A, the collapse of verificationism. Uh, I can You should be able to. Verificationism. and the revival of metaphysics. Okay, verificationism is explained there, number one, as the claim that only that which can be verified is true. The reason verificationism failed is that it failed its own test. The statement itself only that which can be verified as true could not itself be verified by the senses. And so, it could not be true. It's self-defeating. Okay, and number two, this led to a rise or a revival of metaphysics or uh, the study of the fundamental nature of being. Uh, it was not um, it was not limited to the study of the physical. Uh, we could ask meaningful questions about the fundament fundamental nature of being without uh, going towards verificationism. Only that which can be uh, verified with our five senses is true. Okay, and B, uh, there has been a rise of theists in the university. The very place we were talking about uh, that theists abandoned in the 19th and early 20th century. Quentin Smith is an atheist philosopher. You may want to make a note of that because uh, anytime you can get an atheist to say something um, that kind of goes against his view, it's very powerful. But he said, the predicament of naturalist philosophers, that is atheist philosophers, is not just due to the influx of talented theists, but is due to the lack of counteractivity of naturalist philosophers themselves. 
God is not dead in academia. He returned to life in the late 60s and is now alive and well in his last academic stronghold, philosophy departments. So right here you have a, an atheist philosopher. He's steeped in philosophy and the literature. And he's saying, his perception is, theists are on the rise in philosophy departments in academia. Not just Christian academia, secular academia. Um, this is extremely important because any field in the university that you can think of, whether it be math, biology, uh, the liberal arts, what have you, has a philosophy that undergirds it. That's why we have philosophy of religion, philosophy of science, philosophy of mathematics, philosophy of education, on and on and on. So if you influence philosophy itself, you're influencing all of these other areas as well. Which is why it's so important that we as Christians do not abandon the university. That is where you will have an incredibly long-lasting impact. C. The perceived retreat of atheism. Number one, Terry Meath, Christian professor of philosophy at Oxford, says, Many philosophers are today talking about the collapse of modern atheism. Not, necessar not necessarily that there are less atheists, but that there is less reason for being one because of the philosophical, scientific, and ethical evidence for the existence of God. And number two, there was an interesting uh, phenomenon that happened several years ago uh, if you know who Richard Dawkins is, he's been called the Bishop of Atheism um, or the High Priest of Atheism. He's one of uh, the he's part of the movement called New Atheists, who are just uh, very vocal about uh, religion in general, very critical, uh, don't hold back. And uh, so everybody was saying, you know, Dawkins, you're you know you're the top guy. Uh, why don't you debate William Lane Craig, who was and is the top Christian debater. And they're, they're saying that's an obvious debate matchup that should be made. Uh, Dawkins refused to debate him, saying that he wasn't qualified, uh, even though Dr. Craig has two doctorates and has debated all of the top atheists in the world besides Dawkins. Uh, the British press absolutely destroyed Dawkins, saying that your refusal to debate him is apt to be perceived as cowardice. Um, there's no reason that you shouldn't unless you're just scared that you'll get destroyed. So uh, Dr. Craig went to uh, New England, or sorry, to England to, uh, he was invited to give a talk there. And while he was there, he said in advance, I will leave open a chair for Richard Dawkins to come and debate if he wants to. And he left that open for uh, some time before he went there, and he showed up. Richard Dawkins obviously did not. And so he had an empty chair debate where he took, uh, he, there was an empty chair on the stage, and he was talking to it as if Dawkins was there, using literature or things that Dawkins had said in other places as his debate material. Uh, so you can find that there at that YouTube link. Okay, so atheism is actually on the defensive. Um, you may not know that because of the way that atheism is um, 
talked about or perceived via media, but uh, in academia, certainly, uh, that's the case. Number B, or letter B, arg the arguments for Christianity and theism in general are stronger than ever. Um, just in general, apologetic methods are succeeding, um, and here is just a quote to tell you that our uh, apologetic methods are succeeding from Cardinal Avery Dulles, who says, all over the United States, there are signs of a revival. Evangelical Protestants are taking the lead, and their method succeeds. The churches that combine a concern for orthodoxy with vigorous apologetics are growing. Their seminaries attract large numbers of enthusiastic students. So young people, students in general, are hungry for truth and uh, a concern for orthodoxy. Um, these methods are succeeding because B, scientific discoveries and the development of strong philosophical arguments that harmonize with Christian orthodoxy have bolstered the Christian faith. And we will get into some of those arguments and evidences later on. So the big question, why do apologetics? What reason do we have to do apologetics? Well, there are four main reasons. Letter A, shaping culture. That blank there is culture. Okay. Uh, if you go to Europe right now, you would definitely not think of it as a Christian area. Um, most of the countries there have become heavily secularized. Uh, entire neighborhoods of uh, France are actually Muslim now. Um, you can hear the call to prayer called over loudspeakers in France. Um, certainly Canada and Australia have headed that way and America is on its way towards that. Um, the culture is such that the gospel is not heard as a rationally viable option anymore. If you tell people in Europe that you're a Christian, they look at you as if you're a believer in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. It's crazy. It's something that you should be institutionalized for. Uh, the universities have become hostile to Christianity. Obviously, um, uh, many of us understand that from uh, reports from the universities. Actually, there's a guy named Peter Bogosian who's a professor of philosophy um, who wrote a book called A Manual for Creating Atheists where he says, look, it's my goal to, in the classroom, have my students question their faith at the end of the class. Um, it doesn't get much more blatant than that. Uh, C, the perception has grown that Christians are anti-intellectual and unreasonable. Um, all you have to do is look at the way Christians are perceived in TV or uh, movies, um, and definitely even in our own churches. A lot of people say, well, you know, I, I just have a simple faith. I don't need to um, be smart. Um, so that's perceived as being anti-intellectual. We intentionally forego gaining knowledge. D. Apologetics can be used to create a culture where Christian belief is a reasonable option. Okay, let's read that again. Apologetics can be used to create a culture where Christian belief is a reasonable option. 
Okay? Imagine you're at an airport and a guy in a saffron robe and a bald head who looks kind of Asian comes up to you and he says, Hello, I would like you to consider becoming an, a, a follower of Hare Krishna. Can I tell you about Hare Krishna? That, in our culture, would probably be seen as bizarre. We don't consider Hare Krishna a rationally viable option for us. But if you were living in India, where that religion is discussed and uh, talked about and thrown around and compared to other options, uh, you might actually take that offer seriously. And so we want to move Christianity to the point where if we offer it to someone, then their automatic response isn't, you're insane. It's, I have known other people who are rational, who are Christians, and so maybe I should pay attention to what you're saying at least and give you a hearing. And lest we think that uh, everyone in the world is stuck in their beliefs and uh, is incapable of gaining new beliefs, a new study has come out that says 14% of people on social media have changed their minds about something. That's a lot higher than I would have guessed, 14%. Um, so there is a possibility for change. Okay, the second reason why we should do apologetics is strengthening believers. Strengthening believers. The first point there is that uh, having reasons for why you believe what you believe will make you more confident in sharing your faith with others. I taught a class in Nebraska on apologetics and I immediately had to follow it up with a class on evangelism because everyone in the class wanted to share their faith. Uh, because when you're confident in what you believe and are able to share that with other people, you automatically want to be in those conversations. Um, what are some things, okay, let's, let's do this. On a, on a blank part of your paper, write down something that you could teach other people. Something that probably other people don't know as well as you. Oh, ratatouille. I don't know how to make ratatouille. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you've got something that you could that you could teach other people or at least that you know better than other people. How long did you have to work on that thing to get to the point that you're at now? I see pride beginning to fill this room. <laughs> okay, so I was helping uh, the Piners uh, move uh, a few weeks ago, and Mark Barnett talked to me for 20 minutes about a single machine. Right. Yeah. He knew that thing inside and out. 
and he was confident about it. And he was talking about other people who didn't know what they were talking about when they talk about that machine. You could tell that he was super comfortable, and he doesn't talk that much. He was talking to me about that machine because he knew it. And it's the same thing with Christianity. If you know it, and you know it inside and out, and you know how to defend it, you will be confident and be able to talk to other people about it. Okay? There's a calm that comes over you when you get in a combative conversation and you know you know what you're talking about. You don't have to be um, combative. You don't have to be defensive. Right? You already know. And you kind of feel sorry for the other person because they don't have the information. So you just want to teach them what you know. Right? That's part of it. And so having that information can allow us to have the conversations with the gentleness and respect that we need to have and we're called to have. Okay, B, uh, apologetics removes intellectual barriers that cause doubt. We, especially the students in the universities, are bombarded with non-Christian philosophy. Uh, for instance, all truth is relative, you hear that claim, or that there is no truth, or that we can't know the real truth. Um, these are philosophies that cause doubt. Um, how, do we, how can we know that we're not just the only thing that exists and we're just imagining everything else? It's called solipsism. That's the kind of thing that will keep people up at night. Right? Um, so... <laughs> uh, so what one of my professors says is that apologetics fills the potholes on the road to the house of the Lord. Okay? You can take that to the bank. <laughs> All right. C. Apologetics increases passion for learning and sharing. We as believers who are in the church can often get this sort of numb, numbness about us. We get desensitized. Uh, we no longer have a passion. And, and um, you know, Revelation talks about this and uh, the churches that have lost their first love. Um, this should be our passion. The, the knowledge of God and what he has done for us should naturally inflame in us a desire to reach other people and share with them the truth. Okay, the third reason for doing apologetics is winning unbelievers. Okay, obviously, you're going to be more persuasive if you know what you're talking about. Okay? And your witness is just going to become that much more effective if you have arguments and evidence um, to back what you're saying. How many of you have family members who are not Christians? The majority in the room. Okay. Um, apologetics helps with that. Because when your family members see you as a rational believer, then they will take you seriously when you say something. Uh, it's not just emotion-driven. When you hear a person arguing emotionally, that's a good time to just shut off conversation because they're not thinking anymore, right? Uh, letter B, many do not realize just how satisfying Christianity is, both intellectually and emotionally. Uh, one of the great motivators towards the gospel is giving people um, the knowledge that they're missing something and that that thing that's missing can be fulfilled in Christianity. 
Okay, I actually just saw an interview with the richest man in Singapore. And uh, this little kid, uh, he was probably late teens, early 20s, he, uh, he asked this very rich guy, he said, you know, what's one thing that you wish you could tell people? And he said, I have a lot of money, but what I found is that we're all broken, and that we're all missing a piece. And for me, that missing piece was our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the richest man in Singapore. He could afford anything. And he said, it doesn't matter how much money you have or how, much, how many things you have. Um, once you see that you're missing something and that that thing is Jesus Christ, uh, it's a very powerful. And he wanted to share that with other people. So if we can show people that Christianity is satisfying, um, then it, it provides them with motivation uh, to hear the gospel. So it provides not only intellectual answers for the origin of the cosmos, the appearance of design in the universe, and moral experience, but it also gives us hope for meaning, value, and purpose in life, drawn from the knowledge of God and the promise of immortality. And the fourth reason to do apologetics is because God commands us to be prepared. Um, there are other benefits to it, but even if we didn't see any benefits at all, it would still be reason for us to do it just because God tells us to. By definition, God is the ultimate authority. So anything that he commands is automatically our divine obligation and duty. And that is it for lesson one. Any questions? So those of you who have non-believing family members, does belief ever come up, and how have those conversations gone? Very sensitive. Um, I'm actually probably less offensive with the family member than I am if I got to, let's say, a discussion with the biology professor. Um, but it's, it's, it's a little more touchy because this is a person who knows who you are, what you were. And, you know, you got different things in there like powdered butt syndrome. It's harder for people that powdered your butt to believe what it is you got to say. <laughs> and then you have the child syndrome, which is, well, mom and dad are just brainwashed, so anything they say to me... And it's amazing that you take my daughter, for instance, I can look at her and say, that's, that's wrong, that's not the way you should be thinking. You're crazy, you don't know what you're talking about. She'll turn around and talk to Josh, come back to me and start, oh, he told me this and he's just absolutely right and everything else. I just told you that too. <laughs> um, so it's a little bit more frustrating, but what I've, what I've learned to do with it is more or less just let the Holy Spirit do his thing. Because there's nothing I'm going to do to be able to change that situation anyway. And then I just keep allowing her to meet the people that are in my life that make a difference to me. And then let them be able to have the influence that I cannot. So, you know, Pastor Jeremy is just wonderful to my daughter. Wonderful, Pastor Dan, wonderful. Josh, cool guy. Dad, not so much. You need a voice modulator so it doesn't sound like you. What's that? So, so yeah. when you talk, it just doesn't sound like you. So she doesn't recognize. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it was you. It's, it, 
it, it's it's craziness. But um, my thing is, is I've watched a daughter go from uh, a wanted kid to there is no God, complete atheist, to there's something. Um, and the whole time, anytime I bring up anything spiritual, we're just nuts. And her mother brings it up, have mercy, I've got a fight in the house. Um, to where the other day she was quoting First Corinthians and unquote on Facebook, and I'm sitting there going, <laughs> you know. But the thing is, if I say something, it's immediately rejected, and she goes on the offense. Whereas if I just sit back, let the seed grow, it's being more successful. So it's like, you know, some people are like, man, there's not enough time. You got to hammer them, hammer them. I'm like, oh no. Sometimes the rejection of the hammer, you know, it, you can't force. Salvation. Sometimes you just get the seed planted. The biologist friend of mine, I plant a seed. That's yeah. all I can do with it. That's all I'm commanded to do is to go get my chicken and egg. Is a Socratic method. It drives my daughter crazy, but I use I use inquisition. I ask a question, lead them to their own conclusion. She's getting real good now, knowing when I'm a minute late. They generally will stop the conversation on me with that because they get to a point where they realize he's telling the truth and I got to deny it now because if I answer this question he's got me and so the Socratic method's fun but it, it, it's got its negatives too because you can bring a person intellectually down to a point where they don't want to admit they just got it they, they, and that's usually when I leave it alone at that point the, the chicken and egg argument ended up being lizards was the answer because what you didn't know is blizzards decided to have eggs because they were once fish. Okay, you see how this is going? Okay, and I, my question after that was, well, how many lizards had to die before they figured out how to do an egg? And you can just see it. He was done. He had nowhere to take it. How many lizards died to figure out how to make an egg? They can't. They can't answer. So it's a, it's just an interesting. Families are a lot more difficult. Though. Yeah. Uh, pastor of mine in uh, Nebraska had the same thing happen with his daughter. Uh, you would think, you know, pastor's kid, but actually pastor's kids are some of the hardest because they're, they're so deep in it, they hear it all the time. So if they reject it, it's, it's just more numbing every time that they hear it. And so if they hear it a thousand times, then that's that much more uh, deaf that they're going to become to the message and that much harder to reach. So uh, it's very, very, very difficult with family especially kids. Uh, and you're absolutely right. You can't force it. Um, the Lord has to do His work. Right. You know? um, and that's the great, um, the great comfort for us is that our efforts in apologetics and evangelism um, are not, that we, don't, we don't measure success in the number of people that come to Christ. Um, that's up to God. God is the one who has to bring about the results. Our success is in simply being faithful in presenting it and sharing the hope that we have. So, I've, I've, we've been coming to this church many years and I've never been to an apologetics conference because I knew what it was, but I just didn't understand what it was. And that's why I wanted to take this class. So, these are different speakers coming that are known and they're going to prepare us. Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, the, the keynote speaker, his name is Corey Miller. He's the president and CEO of Ratio Christi, which is an on-campus ministry. Um, they go into universities all over the world and do apologetics training and uh, meetings with uh, whoever wants to attend. He's going to be speaking on the relevance of the Bible in today's society as well as um, Mormonism. So there's a lot of Mormons in this area. I don't know if you knew that. but um, So we thought that would be a good topic to touch on. And he is actually a former Mormon himself. He has a PhD. And so he got together with three other former Mormons with PhDs and wrote a book called Leaving Mormonism. So it's these very, very intelligent people coming together and saying, this is why we left Mormonism. So you're going to be able to check that out as well. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses. We have a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses in this area. One of our speakers is a Reasonable Faith chapter director. He's going to be coming in and talking on uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, um, one of the talks uh, is actually, funny enough, uh, ironically, on Christianity and aliens. So, uh, yeah, something for everyone. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Stephen Gar Garofalo is going to be talking on Islam and religious pluralism. So um, that's like, if there are so many religions in the world, how can we know that ours is, or how, how can we be confident that Christianity is the one, right? There are so many. So um, answering that challenge as well. So yeah, just a ton of different topics. And do you sit through all of them? Or do you no, so um, in the breakout, so the, the main session, the main sessions, everyone will be in the same room. The breakout sessions, there will be four going on at the same time. And so you'll only be able to attend one, but we're, we're recording all of them and we're going to make them available to everyone. So everybody who attends will have access to these after the conference. So that's the great thing about these conferences that they're just like fire hydrants, you know, of information and get flooded at you and you can only you know take a cup full and drink from it but it's uh, well worth it is the alien one of the main speaker <laughs> you know i think next year we're we're gonna so it's not this year yeah, yeah. although the main speaker cory miller is an ex-mormon and mormons believe in aliens it's good, so, so... <laughs> 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 So you're going to be going to that one, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, History Channel is just amazing. Because <laughs> they almost got it, but then they, they give all the credit to anybody else but God. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I guess we should wrap up. Um, Pastor Hightower, would you close us in prayer? Okay.